dedicated for the complete and speedy Rafua Shalema of Gilad Pinchas ben Shifra, as well as Le Yule Nishmas Mordechai Yosef Shimon ben Yerachmiel Menachem. Okay, so this year, just to tell you, the title is very funny, right? And people have, I've got a lot of comments on the title and the sheer for dummies and smarties and this and that. How is this? What? I do not. I hope it's not something right, inappropriate. So I said I wasn't sure. No, no, no. It's a candy. And, can, like. and candies oh. are candies. Like, okay, okay. Like No, because sometimes it happens that you give a sheer topic and then it could be like something M&Ms. really eminent. Yeah, okay, M&Ms. smarties. No, no, no. no. Uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> They're like M&M's with quotes. Uh, okay. In appearance. M&M's would be lucky. <laughs> <laughs> to be a smarty. Is it South African? No. British. Oh yeah. Okay. So the idea of this class, just to tell you why the name, is that I think in general, especially before a day like Rosh Hashanah, but in general before the Jewish holiday, sometimes we get this anxiety. I could speak for myself, right? And it's like the day is coming, and you know it's a very very important day, but then you're like, do I know everything that I need to do? Even if you've done it a million times, do I know everything that I need to do? Do I know every single custom, every single mitzvah? Maybe I'm forgetting something, right? So the point of this year is that in the beginning, very briefly, to go through everything you need to know for Rosh Hashanah so that you could go into the day and say, okay, I know exactly my to-do list. And then the rest of this year is to go into everything you want to know, which is not everything you want to know. There's, the want is unlimited, but the idea is to actually bring out the essence of the day and we'll end off with a story, okay? So the first part, very basic, very simple. What is Rosh Hashanah? So over here, you have about four different parts of what exactly is Rosh Hashanah. Number one, it's the new year. Not the Jewish new year, it is the new year. We're going to get into that later in this year. It's the new year. Number two, it's the day because it's the new year where Hashem decides the fate for the coming year. Number three, the main aspect of the day is we blow the shofar in order to declare God as king. Right? We're crowning Him as king using the shofar. And number four, it's a time of judgment where God judges us, but of course with His mercy. Now, the basic, basic to-do list that we do before Rosh Hashanah, there's many, many things. People have many, many customs and very vast. But the basic to-do list before Rosh Hashanah, the men do Hatarat Nedarim, the day of Erev Rosh Hashanah, they do the annulment of the vows. For clarity of what the annulment of the vows is, the annulment of the vows is not to annul the vows which you have made clearly. Like, for example, if you made an oath to a friend, that is not what the annulment of the vows covers. You have to annul that in a different way. The annulment of the vows is for vows you may have made unintentionally, in a dream, in your sleep, something like that. So we do it just to be safe. Another huge aspect of Erev Rosh Hashanah, which I actually hear every year people make fun of. So people think that maybe this is something which developed. So the way it works for a woman to annul the vows, it's a good question. The way it works for a woman to annul the vows is that usually it goes through the husband anyway. So that's number one. But number two is that to annul the vows, like the real vows, anyways, you have to go to a Beit Din. So the annulment of the vows is more of a, it's more of a custom to be extra, extra safe that we're starting on a clean slate for the new year. And that actually leads into the next thing, just very important, is that people make fun of the idea of asking for forgiveness. Like I've heard people say, oh, Arab Rosh Hashanah is coming, now I'm going to get all these messages and WhatsApps. If I did anything to you this past year that I may have wronged you, I'm so sorry, please forgive me, I love you. And even if it's someone who you have really not really any relationship with, like someone who's like just in your contact list, you'll get a message of like, please forgive me. And everyone gets these messages. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. What? <laughs> it's a real thing. It's a real thing to ask for forgiveness. Because you're starting the year on a new slate. You want to have a clean slate. You want it to be as white and clean. 
Anaki Shabev Shar. I don't know if that's good Hebrew, but you want it to be the most clean. Even so, by what? Even by WhatsApp? Even by WhatsApp. If you want to ask for forgiveness, make sure that in people's hearts, and the same when someone asks you for forgiveness, it's a big mitzvah that when somebody asks you, even if it's somebody who you do have a relationship with and a bad one at that, like maybe somebody in business, maybe somebody in your family, maybe somebody, God forbid. But if you have something bad, this is a time to let go. This is a time as much as possible to try to say, to dig deep and say, I forgive you. This is the time for that. That's one of the main preparations before Rosh Hashanah is if somebody asks you for forgiveness, to try to dig as deep as possible and forgive them. And if you ask somebody else for forgiveness, to make sure that you have a clean slate. Um, another thing is, is to visit the gravesite of a righteous person. To visit the gravesite of a righteous person over here in Israel, we're spoiled with riches. But I'll tell you the closest ones, if you want to know for practicality, if you're interested in vi- visiting the gravesite of a righteous person, there is the Kleisenberger Rebbe, who is buried by um, the Netanya Shikun Vatikim Cemetery. And also Binyamin <coughs> is buried not far away, which I didn't know. Binyamin, the son of, uh, yeah, the son of Jacob, Binyamin, the original Binyamin, he's buried next to Kfar Saba. So if you need to visit the gravesite of a righteous person, what? That's good to know. Yeah, I, did, I, I, I looked up gravesites of righteous people and I see Binyamin. I thought he was buried in Egypt. It says he's buried over there. It says Binyamin's buried. That's what it says. I hope it's a real Tzion. <laughs> That's what it says on Google Maps and I see a picture. <laughs> Binyamin Ben Yaakov. <laughs> It could be that he was moved. I'm not sure. Yeah. It could be the truth is that it's referring to someone else. I just saw the basic, I'm just giving the options that I know that there's a Tzion next to Farsaba that clearly looks like a full-on built Tzion, which is a place of a gravesite of righteous people. And it's a big custom to do that. Why do we do that? Just so people have clarity on this idea in general. When you go to pray at the gravesite of a righteous person, you're not praying to the righteous person. Because a lot of people have that like, you know, especially with Chabad and the Rebbe, and it's like, oh, you're praying to the Rebbe and this and that. It's a whole deity thing. And the idea is that you're asking the righteous person to intercede on your behalf. So when you go to a righteous person, you're saying, listen, you were a righteous person in your lifetime. Now you're up in Shemayim. When it comes to the day of judgment, go to God and beg on our behalf. Make sure to defend us. That's what you're basically saying when you go to a righteous person. You're not praying to them. <laughs> Another few customs that we do on Rosh Hashanah itself. That's from before Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah itself, we have the food customs. These are not just random Baba Mises. It's not like we have on the table random foods just because. It's straight from the Talmud, that the Talmud gives a list and exactly what you say after them of foods that you should try to have on your table on Rosh Hashanah. The quick list is leeks, cabbages, beets, dates, gourd, pomegranate, and the head of a sheep or a fish. If you have the head of a sheep, you're probably gonna scare a few people at your table. It'd be very exciting, very exciting Rosh Hashanah. The head of a fish also you'll scare. I, I know from my childhood, I still have scary memories of the head of the fish. <laughs> and then the, the creepy uncle that eats the, the eye. Not that anyone, <laughs> making fun of anyone that eats the eye. No, but Moroccans. What, that eat the eye? Yes. <laughs> my grandfather would pick the cheek meat of the keves throughout the entire meal. Until we got oh, you had the head of a sheep? Oh my and gosh. And they also eat the, head of, the eyes of a fish. My okay. Yes. What about jelly fishes? Like the candies. What candies? Like the candies. Uh, yes, candy. people do that. We'll do that at ours. What jellyfish? Candy, uh, like candy. Swedish fish, like candy. Oh, because it's a, oh, so it's so a nice. So we'll have way all of, that on the table. So not to have a head of a so fish. So you'll have the remote. Right. Instead of having the fish, you <laughs> have the candy fish and the whatever. Yeah. And little food. white sheep chocolates and stuff. We like had that. a big we round of broad ones at our house for Rosh Hashanah, and we had a fish head instead of a lamb head that year. He asked my grandmother if he can go to the kitchen before, like we did the the seder of Rosh Hashanah, 
to speak with the fish and get a bracha. Who said this? The Rav. He wanted to go and check what tzaddik was in the fish, and he wanted to like get a bracha from the fish before we started the meal. So that's that's unbelievable. So that's I think is more Sephardic, and that's Maybe. you see, there's very deep, very deep, yeah, deep yeah. ideas to Rosh Hashanah. Like, tzaddik came reincarnated. I don't know why. <laughs> 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 and there's, by the way, a fantastic, which Alan recommended me, just so you know, also for our community, there's an unbelievable fish store in Nordau. Fresh fish, fantastic. Like, if you're looking for good fish, little uh, tidbit for that guy. Cause nice guy. Yeah, he does deliveries. He does deliveries. Yes. What's his name? Itzik? Itzik Haddayag. Yeah. Amazing. He's the best. Okay. Uh, they uh, did the 12th of Galil. The what? The 12th of Galil? Yeah. Yes. Apparently, the Arizal marked out, went and investigated where the graves really were. And there's a book that you can get and say the Arizal said, no, this guy's not buried here. Not him. And another gravesite would say, yes, he's buried here, but he's 20 meters south from the tree and 30 meters east from that point. And he, uh, he went through a lot of the grave sites to say where they, where they exactly were and who, that, who the person actually was. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, as well as, oh, thank you very much. As well as, is just to end off the basics of Rosh Hashanah, is that the actual day itself, when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, so you could feel, okay, the basic, basic, unique aspect of Rosh Hashanah that every Chag we have, right? Pesach has that we say over the story of the Exodus. Shavuos, as we have, um, we read on the Sarat Dibrot. For, sh- for Rosh Hashanah, it's number one to blow the shofar, and number two is tashlich. Those are the two things that we do on Rosh Hashanah. What? To hear the shofar. Yes, to hear the shofar and tashlich. Those are the two things that we do on Rosh Hashanah, which are unique. So you could feel on Rosh Hashanah, if you hear the shofar, which today it's only one day, it's only the second day, because the first day is on Shabbat. So only the second day in Shul, there's going to be shofar. The first day, there's no shofar whatsoever. Still need to come though. Yes, still need to come. Still need to come. And the shofar and tashlich, which tashlich, of course, you go to the water, you give your sins to the fish. It's also that you're commemorating that Abraham walked by the water when he was going to do the Akedat Yitzchak. A few different things. And then, of course, in the actual Amida, we have machiot, zichronot, and shofrot. And that is the end of the basic, what you need to know, to-do list for Rosh Hashanah. Now we can go into the depth. I heard an unbelievable idea from Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz. Unbelievable. He's from South Africa, if I'm not mistaken, no? Yeah, unbelievable. Where he basically, number one, when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, this is a very unique holiday for one huge reason, which is, like we said in the beginning, it is not a Jewish holiday. What do I mean that it's not a Jewish holiday? Pesach, we commemorate the Jews coming out of Egypt, right? Basically the birth of our nation. Shavuot, we commemorate us getting the Ten Commandments, which is also in a way the birth of our nation. Sukkot, we commemorate the fact that we were protected by the clouds in the desert and therefore we're celebrating with God in the huts outside, right? All of it is about us, the Jewish people specifically. Rosh Hashanah is not about us. Rosh Hashanah is about the birth of humanity. That is what we're commemorating on Rosh Hashanah. So when we're coming and we're saying to God that we want a judgment for the new year, we're not saying we want a judgment for the new year for us, for the Jewish people. We're saying for the entire world. The Rambam even says, Maimonides says, that when you go to shul, not just for your community, if let's say, for example, somehow you were the only Jewish person in your town, the Rambam says that you are the conduit for your entire city to be judged for the coming year. Which means that this year, when we go to shul, it's not just for the Jewish people, it's for everyone in the entire universe, 
and you as a Jewish person are going to be the conduit that's going to bring down that judgment for the coming year. That's why, if you'll notice, many times we say kol olam kulo, right? Kol olam kulo. Why do you have a repetitive term? It's nice for the song, you know, kol olam kulo works with the lyrics and it works with the tune, but it's more than that. Why, why do you need to say kol olam kulo? Repetitive. The entire world, the whole thing. You know, does God not hear well that you have to say it twice? Like, what's the reason? The reason is because in Judaism, you see in halacha, we always go by the majority. The majority is very respected in Judaism to the point that, for example, if you see today in the high courts, I don't know if they have this in Israel here, but in America, when the Supreme Court gives a ruling, it will say, what's the majority opinion? Like, what was the, what was the psak din? What was the judgment? And then it also says the dissenting opinion writes up a whole thing of what their dissenting opinion was, why they didn't agree. They don't just like, you know, say, okay, fine, this is it. In Jewish law, it's not like that. In Jewish law, when the Sanhedrin would vote, the minority opinion had to completely nullify their opinion. Once they were the minority, it was as if their opinion was not. There was no afterwards saying, oh, if they left the court, maybe going to their, their followers and being like, oh, listen, I tried to vote for this, but we didn't get it. Once the majority votes, that's everybody. And we see that in every aspect of halacha. When it comes to, you know, you can't do it intentionally, but it comes to a drop of milk falling into a vat of meat. We say the majority, it's nullified. In general, we see that the majority is very, very strong in Judaism. Kola Olam Kulo is saying that we don't want God to rule the majority of the world. For sure, not just the Jewish people. That God is ruling every single creature in the entire universe. Not just the Jewish people, not just the majority of the world, Every single creation in the entire universe is ruled and created by God. And that is what we are commemorating when we say, Kola Olam Kulo, the whole world in its entirety, not just the majority, everything. Now we come to our major question, which was what I was blown away by Rabbi Tatz. Is if you look on Rosh Hashanah, you'll see something very fascinating. We do not do Teshuva on Rosh Hashanah. When Rosh Hashanah comes, there's no slichot, there's no ashamnu, bagadnu, there's none of that. There's no vidui. That's all for Yom Kippur. When it comes to Rosh Hashanah, the entire time we're crowning God as king, we're blowing the shofar, we're asking God to remember the good things that we've done in the past, the zichronot, malchiot, zichronot, v'shofrot, crowning God as king, blowing the shofar and the, and the remembrances of the Jewish people, but we're not doing teshuva. And it's practically, if you put it into layman's terms, it's practically like coming to a court case, and you're not defending your case and you just come up to the whole court case and you sit there and you're just like, as if you're like an aha, you come to the court case and you're like, yeah, you know, we're just going to figure this out. And then you get a bad judgment. And then Yom Kippur, you come to the appeals. So it's as if your lawyer didn't prepare at all for the first round of court, you lost. And now you're coming to the appeals court and you're trying again. So the question is, why do we not do Teshuvah on Rosh Hashanah? If today is the day of judgment, that's the day. When it's a day of judgment, we should be sitting there banging our hearts. We should be getting down on our knees on the floor, bowing all the way down. Why are we not doing the shuvah? Why are we not repenting? So the answer is like this. We're spending the entire day crowning Hashem as the king of the universe. And this is much deeper and much more powerful than the itself. How do we see that? Because in Judaism, <clears throat> in Yiddishkeit, everything goes after the point of origin. Which means... We say, In Judaism, we don't try to deal with the details. We try to go to the essence of something, straight to the seed. We don't want to deal just with the branches of the tree. We want to go straight to the seed. What Rosh Hashanah does is, let's say, for example, like this. Imagine you are the CEO of a company, right? Or, for example, he mentioned an example which I find to be astounding, but apparently in Saudi Arabia, the king of Saudi Arabia, once a year, lets the layman citizens come to him and ask him for one thing. So imagine you had such a situation, right? 
once a year, the CEO of the company calls you in and he says, listen, I want you to tell me what's your pitch for this year, you know, whatever. If you come into his office that one day a year and you have your chance to speak straight to the CEO and he's giving you quality time, what do you say in that time? Do you say, I want a promotion? Do you say, I want to get a new carpet in my office? Do you say, my view is not good? Maybe we can work out to get an ocean view instead of a city view, whatever it is. Is it possible that we can work out those things? Or you come to the CEO and you say, listen, I want to make sure that I have a job the coming year. That's the most important thing that you should be asking for. All the other things, you can start sending him emails and harassments or whatever, but you need to make sure that you have a job. Because if you don't have a job, then there's nothing to talk about. What we're coming to do on Rosh Hashanah is we're not coming and asking for all the details. That's not what Rosh Hashanah is about. We're not coming and asking for how much money we're going to make, how much health we're going to have. Those are details. What we're coming and saying to God is create the world again. Make us alive again. Make a judgment to renew the lease on existence. Because really the way the world works is every year it goes back to non-existence. And for the world to continue existing, God has to say, I'm interested in another year. And maybe this year he's going to say, no, the way it's been, I'm not interested this coming year. So we're saying to God is please create the world again. And this idea of going to the point of origin, you see many times in the Torah. For example, the first word in the Torah is Bereshit. They say that in the word Bereshit, you could find the entire Torah in that one word. Do you know how many permutations you could have of the word Bereshit? If there's six letters, how many times, how many permutations could you have of the word Bereshit? So six factorial is 720. This word, many, many, many different ways, literally spells out the entire Torah because everything in Torah is in the origin. It's in the DNA. It's in the genome. That's what Rosh Hashanah is. It's the genome. It's the DNA. It's the seed of the entire year. So I'll just give you a few examples with the word Bereshit. The word Bereshit can be spelled out as Barashis, which means it was created in six days. It also spells Yashar Aleph Bet Tuf, to go straight from the Aleph Bet to Tuf. It spells Brit Esh, a covenant of fire. It spells Yerei Shabbos, the awe of Shabbos. It spells Aleph Tishrei. And as well, there's a story with the Vilna Gon that someone once came to him, because maybe those are all famous and like very critical Jewish ideas. But somebody once came to the Vilna Gon by Pidyon Aben, when they do the redemption of the firstborn son, if he's not the son of a coin, everything. And they come to the Vilna Gon, and this is a very specific mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that you know, it's very rare. Some people have never been to a Pidyon Aben. Yeah. So, what, did he what? No, uh, when Gabriel had his Pidyon Aben, it was... Uh the first pigeon of Ben that had been held in the Oxford Shul for, I think, 120 years or something. Exactly. They've never seen it. They didn't know what to do with us. Exactly. So pigeon of Ben, such a specific mitzvah. Amazing. So you guys will appreciate this. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, so they'll appreciate this because this is a very, very... We had to. Yeah. You had a pigeon of Ben? Yes. My son and Greta. It's funny that it's so... What? It's funny that it's so rare. It's very interesting. It's so rare. My husband was a before. His father was a before, but it's it's died out. Oh yeah. We also don't have it if it's a C-section. Yeah. Many things. Yeah. No, it has to be a specific thing, but still, like 120 years. Meaning, you didn't think it'd be that rare. Well, it's not that young. It's a very young show, and then people leave. No, Oxford for standing to yeah? A community. It's a generally oldish community. One of my nephews is actually a sixth generation before. Really? Oh. And oh, actually, he has a son. His son was a C section. That's right. Uh, so and they stopped. have to be Israel, both. No Levi. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah, he's a sixth generation. Wow. Okay, so this story with the Vilna Gon. He was by Pidyon Aben. 
one of the students came over to him and they said, Goin, how do you see the mitzvah of Pidyan Ben in the word Bereshit? If it's such a rare mitzvah, you'd imagine it wouldn't be in the word Bereshit. It's such a specific once in 120 years in the Oxford synagogue. He tells them, Ben Rishon Acher Shloshim Yom Tifta. It's exactly the acronym of the word Bereshit spells out the mitzvah of Pidyan Ben. It's not just one example where you see the word Bereshit contains in it the entire Torah. This idea, another example that he brought was there's a rabbi named Rabbi Moshe Shapiro. He was an absolute giant of the previous generation, a genius of a man. What he would do is, is every Saturday night, every Motzei Shabbat, he would have a shear like this, and he would have about six or seven guys sitting there every Motzei Shabbat, and he would say to them, you guys pick the topic. He was a genius. So it was like, you could pick a topic, and you'll hear from the story how brilliant he was. These six or seven guys sitting around the table, they would say, okay, I want you to talk about uh, a Kabbalistic idea. I want you to talk about the Parsha. I want you to talk about the Talmud. And they would have a bunch of different topics, right? Rabbi Moshe Shapiro would give a shear on the essence that connected all of those six ideas, which means we're not saying over here we'd give a shear and talk about all six ideas. He would talk about the core idea that was the core of all the six ideas that they shared. So Rabbi Tatz wondered, how is it possible to do such a thing? So he went to another teacher of his and he asked him, how is it possible that Rabbi Shapiro is able to do that? He's able to connect these things all together. He said, it's very simple. The Torah is an Eitz Chaim. The Torah is a tree, which means just like a tree, everything from the tree, even if it's a massive, massive tree, everything in the tree comes from a tiny seed going into the ground and rotting and then turning into a tree. That's the idea of the Torah. Everything goes back to the core. Everything goes back to the essence. And that's why in Rosh Hashanah, we have Machiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. What does that stand for? We're crowning Hashem as king. <clears throat> We're saying to God that there's one thing in the entire universe that you cannot have without us. You could create everything. You could have all the oceans, all the rivers, all the fields, all the mountains, the galaxies, everything. But there's one thing that you cannot be without your Jewish people. And that is you cannot be the king. Ein Melech Beloam, there's no king without a nation. So we're saying to God, why are we saying Machiot? We're saying be our king, and that is something that we can provide for you that you can't get anywhere else. Exclusive deal just from us. Second, we say Zichronot, that we're saying to God a beautiful idea. We're saying, why do we want a good judgment? Is because we go back to the origin of the relationship. Many times, for example, in a marriage, it can happen that after the marriage goes one year, two years, three years, four years, 10 years, 20 years, all of a sudden the relationship starts taking on a mind of its own and it loses the original passion. The time that you met the person and they took your breath away and you were obsessed with them and thinking about them. And now it became more of like a long-term partnership where you're raising a family and you get lost into the whole, the Mayim Rabin, right? The ocean of life. And when you're asking on Rosh Hashanah, you're saying to God, remember those first moments of passion. Remember the, the love that we had. Remember that excitement that we had. And in general, it's the same idea for a marriage. Is that a marriage, we should never let it get stale. Keep the excitement maybe go through even memories or pictures of the first time and that rekindles it. But we're saying to God, remember those memories. Remember Abraham when he went to sacrifice Isaac. We're saying, okay, now maybe we're a little bit stale. Maybe we're not the same. But remember the good times. Remember all the beautiful times we had in our relationship. Number three is the shofar. And the shofar, the reason why it's such a powerful moment of the day is because the shofar is the deepest, even deeper than Machot and Zichronot. The shofar, the idea is, is it's a cry of the soul. That's why there's no words. In general, you'll see on most holidays, when we're going and praying to God, it's words. If you read the Sefer, if you read the Maksar and everything, it's many, many different words and we're writing poems. Yeah, and even if it's very powerful, it's all poetry and everything, but it's words. 
The shofar is going to a place where there's no articulation. There's no words for the cry out that you're giving. And over here, a beautiful, beautiful idea. Shofar comes from the word shapir, which means beautiful. It also comes from the word shipur, which means to improve. And it also comes from the word shfir in Hebrew, which means the amniotic sac. What are we doing over here? We're going back to the origin. We're crying out to God from a level of an infant. We're saying to God, listen, maybe we messed up this past year. Maybe we made mistakes. Maybe we weren't the best or whatever. But we're just a simple child crying out to you, trying to ask for a good judgment for the coming year. And now to end off with this story, of course. There's a rabbi. His name is Rabbi Chaim Meir Bukit. I'm not sure actually if he's still alive. But this story I heard from a rabbi named Rabbi Moshe Brisky. And Rabbi Moshe Brisky's father and this Rabbi Chaim Meir Bukit grew up together in a small village in Poland that you probably never heard of called Chmelnik. They grew up in Chmelnik, Poland. That's a really Jewish word, Chmelnik. <laughs> yes, Chmelnik, Poland. And this Rabbi Chaim Meir Bukit, he now is the patriarch of an absolutely massive, impressive family, Chabad family. He has grandchildren. I went to a yeshiva in Baltimore where his grandson is the mashpia there. He's like the guy that brings all the, the liveliness and, and his grandson's unbelievable. This Rabbi Chaim Meir Bukit is like, his family is unbelievable family. And he would have, every year he would be a teacher during the year, he was a Rebbe. And then in the summer he would teach in the Catskills in upstate New York, okay? That was his thing every year. One year, for whatever reason, they canceled the program in the Catskills. And now this type of guy, a very, very serious rabbi, took his time very seriously and being a Rebbe very seriously. So he thinks to himself, what's he going to do with himself? He's the type of guy that doesn't waste a day. Like, you know, some people don't know how to go on vacation. He's one of those people. It's not like he just goes, oh, yeah, you can take a summer off now because you've been teaching for 30 years. For him, like, that's totally like a fish out of water. So his daughter, who's married to a guy named Stillman, calls him up and she says they were um, a rabbi in Rebidson in, I forgot the exact city in California. It's next to a college in California. This is in 1970. By the way, the story took place. They call him up and they say, Dad, Tati, come and spend the summer with us. You'll see what we do. They did outreach on campus over there in a college campus. They said, come check out what we do. So he said, fine. Back in those days, apparently there was no flights or maybe they weren't so common. He had to take a train for a week to get from New York to California. Went to California and the first Shabbos, this guy is like a serious guy, like literally born in Chmeldek, Poland. Very serious guy. They start to warn him about what the atmosphere is like on a Friday night in this college campus. This is the 70s of California on the college campus. So they're telling him, listen, dad, you're used to living in like East Flatbush, okay? There's going to be some people by the Friday night meal that are going to look a little funny. It's an outreach center, right? They're going to look a little funny. They're trying to explain to him what hippies are. <laughs> they're going to look a little funny. They're going to say a little funny stuff. Don't get uncomfortable. You know, just know they're all good people. They come from a different background. You know, they're like petrified. What's he going to think of like the hippies in California? When they offer you grass, just smile and say no thanks. Yes, exactly. All the warnings. So he, he comes to the meal. And they had like the head table where the rabbis would sit. It was a big outreach center. The head table where the rabbis would sit. And then all the students would sit at these massive tables, long tables, huge, massive Friday night meal. And he says, I want to sit with the college students. So they're thinking again, like, okay, there's going to be a recipe for disaster. But he's like, no, I want to fully experience this. I don't want to sit by the rabbi's table and sit with a bunch of rabbis. I always sit with the whole year. I want to sit with the students. Fine. He sits smack in the middle. He has a big white beard, smack in the middle of all the students. And a guy sits next to him whose name is Tuvia, which this guy apparently is a very famous character in LA. Now he's very well known. I think he was Jose Bichuva and everything. He sits down by a guy named Tuvia. Why is he very well known? Tuvia was a, is a, I believe, an eccentric genius. 
He knew 17 languages fluently. So when he sat down next to the rabbi, he knew Yiddish also fluently. So he starts speaking to the rabbi in Yiddish. So he says, what's your name? Chaim Bukit, where are you from? He says, oh, I'm from uh, New York. Originally, I'm from Poland. And he says, from Poland? Where are you from in Poland? And he's like, you're not going to know the name. You're not going to know the name of where I'm from. He says, no, try me. He says, I'm from Chmelnik. And he's like, you're from Chmelnik? He says, my grandparents are from Chmelnik. And not just are they from Chmelnik, there's a society in Los Angeles called the Chmelnik Society of people who survived the war, came from Chmelnik, Poland, and made a society of Chmelnik survivors. So Rabbi Bukit gets very excited because he's a survivor of the Holocaust, of the Shoah. And back in those days, there was no Google. Um, Yad Vashem, I believe, I'm not sure exactly then, but they were collecting all the information. But it wasn't just, you couldn't just find on Facebook or try to trace back on, you know, it was very hard to find out what happened to your people. So he's all excited. He's like, the Chmelnik Society? He's like, yeah, the Chmelnik Society. Unbelievable. He's like, okay, let me connect to them after, after Shabbos. Sure enough, he does. And there's a woman named Chana who says, I want to speak to you, Rabbi. I recognize your name and I want to meet with you. And Rabbi Bukit realizes from the way she said it to whatever it is, he realizes that this is going to be a serious meeting, meaning this is a very emotional thing, meeting people from your village before, pre-war, everything. And he tells all of his kids, I want you to dress in Shabbos clothes and I want you to come to the meeting with me in the outreach center. That's where they're going to meet. All of his kids come dressed in Shabbos clothes over there. He already had a lot of kids then. Now he has like a, it's an army. It's not even, can't imagine. He comes to the outreach center and he meets with this woman. Her name is Chana. She's a very regal dressed woman. And she tells him, Rabbi, I want to tell you a story. She says, I was in a boxcar with your mother, Rachel, on the way to Treblinka. When we were in the boxcar, I looked up on the top of the boxcar and there was a slit. There was a narrow window. And I told her, I said, Rachel, let's go. Let's climb to the top. Anyways, they're taking us to our death. There's nothing that we gain from staying in this boxcar. At least let's try. Let's jump through the window. Well, maybe we'll be able to get on the roof of the boxcar and we'll jump. And if we don't survive landing from the, the train, we're not going to survive anyways when we get there. So what do we have to lose? Like there's nothing. Let's at least give it a shot. And I looked at your mother, she tells him, and he, she was completely done. She was broken. She was tired. She said, she looks up at me and she says, I cannot. She says, I do not have the energy. I don't have the strength. I can't come with you. And she says, I was pleading with your mother for a while. I was telling her, we got to go. We got to go. Come on. You have to find this one last, just to get to the top of that window and everything. She says, I can't do it. I'm not, I can't do it. There's no, and fine. I decide I'm going to go and your mother's going to stay behind. As I'm about to climb up, she says, your mother grabs my face and she pulls my face very close to me. And she says, I want to tell you something. She says, I have one son. I have an only son. His name is Chaim Meir. She says, one day, if you survive, if you survive the fall from the train, if you survive the Nazi guards that are going to be looking to see if anybody jumps, if you survive all these different 25 miracles that you need in order to survive, and then one day you meet my Chaim Meir, tell him that I left an imprint on this world, that I left a mark on this world. Tell him that I didn't die for nothing. Sure enough, she says, now I'm sitting here with you in this outreach center. I see all your kids. All his kids are sitting around him. They're dressed in Shabbos clothes. His daughter is with the Rebbe and the thing. And she's like, look, and like now I'm able to tell you this message and know that it's true, that your mother did not die for nothing, that you're here today. So what's the message of this story for Rosh Hashanah? Is that this is the day when you decide, like we said, it is literally the DNA, the seed, it's the genome of the entire year. This is the day that you make that choice. One more thing that I want to put into your mind, to keep in mind for this coming year, 
is that you're not just you yourself. You are you, you're your parents, you're your grandparents, the Bubbies and Zaydis, the fathers and mothers, the aunts and uncles, you're everybody on your shoulders. Every single one of those generations went through something in order to get here. Especially as Jewish people, I don't think any generation just lived a simple Pasha, I don't think that existed. Every generation had to work something to get here. And now we're here, we're sitting in Israel, we're in a beautiful community on the beach. Now we're here and they're all, we're all on their shoulders. We're here today and it's in our hands. So I'm saying to keep in mind when you're coming to shul, when you're thinking about who you are, what you want to be for the coming year, think about those people that put in the work to get you here and the responsibility that you carry with you. Chag Sameach. Shana Tova.